Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome. This is Carl's Roller Coaster Podcast. Hey, Edgy and Delilah, welcome to the roller coaster. Good to see you. What's up, my bro? We're gonna take you on a roller coaster ride, so let's do it. I know. I'm. 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 I'm, I'm not entirely sure which one is it. If it's gonna be the next sixty minutes of our chat. Or the upcoming tour that we've got ahead, which I'm very looking forward to it. But uh, but I'll take it, brother. I'll take it. I'm all in. <laughs> Put your seatbelt on tight, bro. There might be a few derailments along the way here. <laughs> awesome. So first of all, thank you guys for like taking the time uh, to talk to to me today. Um, we're gonna basically just navigate, you know, uh, from your upbringing and go through your career and and touch on topics that you might be interested, you might not be interested. I have a bunch of roller coaster questions in the end, so uh, I guess I'll start basically from the beginning, like asking you know uh, Edgy first and maybe Delilah afterwards or Delilah first, ladies first. Uh, where were your where was your upbringing and uh, how did you know music came into your life and at what age that came into your life? Okay. Um, uh, I, uh, I was born and raised in New York, and um, uh, music. I, I don't know. Mine was like visual first. My dad. I remember my dad was watching like he used to like Blondie and like those bands, like Susie and the Banshees. And I remember seeing like the videos on the screen and like liking that and hearing Bob Marley when I was growing up. So music was always like around. He was also a painter, and so was my mom. So. It was like art and music was like a part of my growing up. And I always sang, but I, I used to sing like, you know, kids songs and like annoy everyone in the house. So I always wanted to be a singer. Edgy, <laughs> <laughs> what about you, my friend? Um, I forgot the question, like how we got started <laughs> in music. <laughs> uh, well, how, was no. your how was your upbringing? Where, where were you born and how did music came into your life? Was it something similar to Delilah family or how did that happen? Um, it's hard to remember when I first got into music because I felt like, I felt like it was something that was just always there. Like you were born with music, you know what I'm saying? Like. I have very vivid memories of when I was two, three, four years old or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, like probably my best memories are from that age. You know what I mean? And what I remember most about my childhood is the, the music, you know? So I would really, really, I was, yeah, I was like obsessed with, um, the Beatles. I see you got your Beatles shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> um, my father, he's the one that listened to rock music, you know what I mean? But in Portuguese, he's Portuguese and there was a dictatorship here until 1974. And funny enough, the Beatles never played Portugal. Rock music was like outlawed. It was like, if you heard it, it was like underground. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't have to go into it, I guess, like how messed up it was in Portugal at that time during the dictatorship, but it's as bad as you can think it is, you know, under uh, a fascist dictatorship. Um, but he got into the into bands like the Beatles and another one of his favorite bands was the Rolling, uh, not the Rolling Stones, uh, Creedence Clearwater. So those were my my introduction to rock music were the Beatles and Creedence Clearwater, right? The, I was like obsessed with them. Um, yeah, I like yeah. Creedence a lot. 
his voice. Totally. And uh, we always knew there were bands from like the past of another era, but it just felt so contemporary to me, even at a very young age. I wasn't even in kindergarten yet, bro. So it's like, I'm talking like four years old. That's all I would, I would make mixtapes of music and modern music too, whatever. I listened to everything, but my introduction to rock was the Beatles and Creedence Clearwater. Later on, the blues and all that, but I didn't start with that. I started with Beatles and Clearwater, Creedence Clearwater. So that's basically what uh, your dad was listening at home? Did he have uh, like records? Would he be spinning records at home and then he would pick up uh, on the music? He would work all the time. So if, if he wasn't like fucking sitting there, like, you know, listening to like telling me like, looks and how great music sounds on vinyl. You know what I mean? He's not doing that. The dude rock bell bottoms, you know what I mean? <laughs> he had the stash going. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, he, he wasn't like, nah, he wasn't like, he didn't have this like big audio collection, vinyl collection or anything like that. Like, uh, it's just music that he listens to all the time, mostly in the car when he would, you know, would go to the field to play soccer or went to the bar. Yes, I went to the bar at the age of four. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I was so does she. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I guess, so, so I guess uh, from Delilah's uh, influence from home and then yours from home as well, eventually you guys started to dig into it and then basically go, well, to the decade before 50s and, and the emergence of the blues and uh, yeah. and, and things like that. Because I, I know that lots of like yeah. Howling Wolf is a huge influence on you guys and Janice and... Uh, but Rock Warriors. and Roll's not, I mean, no, we got to correct that. Mm. I don't know if Delilah wants to chime in here, but it, it wasn't that we were just into music. For I'm speaking for myself, I'm, Delilah was the same, but she could tell you. Music was everything. It ruled every part of my life, even before kindergarten. You know what I'm saying? It's it is what it is. Like it's just I. It was 24/7 music. Like that's all I cared about. I'd sit there for hours making mixtapes. I would be pulling radios apart and then putting it back together just to see what the hell's in there. You know what I'm saying? Like it was just music. Like it was an obsession. It just took over my entire life since I could ever remember. You know what I mean? But there was no obsession with rock at one point. You know what I'm saying? Like it was, for me, it was all hip hop. And now you can. Yeah. I think I didn't really get into rock until like, like senior high school or something. It was like more, I don't even like, um, I don't know. I was listening to like more <laughs> like Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey like stuff. Like a lot of that, like growing up. So I was like, hear the voices. I was like obsessed with voices. And would like try to like hit all the notes, like be in my room with the CD, rewinding, like, how did you say it? I should like do that note and all that. <laughs> no, if I was listening to this podcast, I'd think that you were like, you, you first came out as an artist in like 1960s or something. Like, it, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're talking about Creed's Clearwater Beatles, she's talking about um, Aretha Franklin, you know what I mean? No, like, I didn't Aretha Franklin, it's a Mariah Carey. Yeah, Aretha Franklin. She, she said, Houston. oh, Whitney Houston. Right. Well, yeah. it, do, it does come to me as a surprise uh, that you were actually more into, say, Mariah Carey in the beginning and you edgy into hip-hop than yeah. actually what um, I actually get to hear in your music. But I'm sure we're going to get to that. But that's really interesting yeah. because it broadens even more your spectrum yeah. of musical influences and, you know... Yes, yes and no, but yes, but within the rock genre, that spectrum, it gets narrower for us. Our, I, I, I don't know much about rock music. I'm going to tell you straight up. I, I don't. 
I can't tell you. Our rock spectrum is very narrow. And the reason why is because we grew up on a lot of like what Delilah was saying. In her case, it was more R&B. I grew up on a lot of hip hop. I find it extremely, incredibly difficult to transition back over to rock after going into hip hop. And the reason why is because if you listen to the lyrics of Nas, uh, Biggie Smalls, Tupac, and there's, I mean, the, if, you, if I start listening to underground rappers, it goes on forever. You know what I mean? Even like artists like Big L, I could keep on going. If you listen to those lyrics, right? <laughs> rock becomes elementary. It's almost like, like a second grader road, not even, a, no, a first grader road. You know what I'm saying? You can't transition over. We're talking about words, wordsmiths and people so sick with the pen at, on the level of, of like uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. You know, this is Mozart words. You know what mm. I mean? How am I going to listen to rock music about with the same old shit about a bullet coming, you shot me in the heart, I love you, this, the devil, 666, this and that. Motherfuckers live in the city, bro. Like, or, or a young rock band that comes out talking about mama and flower power, flowers in her hair. No one's got fucking flowers in their hair, bro. There's no flower power, it's dead. The words are reductive. You're copying David Bowie. You're literally copying and pasting the words of a David Bowie chorus, and you're sticking it right into your fucking song. You didn't live it. There's nothing I can relate to about that. You know what I mean? Biggie comes along. It's either you sell crack or you got a wicked jump shot. What the fuck? That one line destroys the entire 10 years of rock music. It's hard to make the transition. Yeah, it's it's very powerful. Yeah, hip hop is real. Hip hop is definitely, um, but I guess there's there's so many layers into into all of the genres of music, and we're obviously talking about the the artistical aspects of the lyricism that hip hop brings uh, to society and to the broader audiences. But then obviously there's there's different layers in terms of like um, what happens with the audiences that connect with that kind of music and the type of message that us the audience uh and most of us are ignorant and we follow uh yeah. suicidal whatever ozzy osbourne used to sing in the 80s and we commit suicide because we think that the artist is actually sending a ethereal message to us that we have to commit suicide so with yeah. that in mind obviously words like the beatles you know she loves you yeah yeah it it, it, it it's just what you said it, it looks very no but that's not what I meant. First of all, I'm sorry, I misquoted um, Biggie. I, I just thought about it now. It's either you sell rocks or you got a, a, a wicked jump shot. It's not crack, it's rocks. You know, some people would kill me for, for messing that lyric up. But no, rock, the reason what got us into rock early on was not just the music, but also the melodies and the lyrics. Creedence had great lyrics. John Lennon is one of the greatest rock poets or lyric writers ever in history. I've never heard a song like Imagine in my whole entire life. You know what I'm saying? It's insane. There is no one doing that. You know what I'm saying? That's why we decided to make rock music because no one's doing it. I don't know a single rock poet in the world right now. You know what I'm saying? That, that's, got, that's known at least. Like, I, I don't know any. I don't. Not at the level of Leonard Cohen. Where are they at? No one's trying to do it. Mm -hmm. No one wants to do it. And rock musicians are afraid to say anything. We're at war right now. 
there's a war going on. You know what I'm saying? I don't see a single anti-war activist except for like one or two. Maybe Roger Waters. Give me another anti-war activist. They're scared. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, you gotta say something about that. I know. <laughs> it's it, well, I, 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 I guess it's uh, it's it's extremely complicated as well. Uh, in every sense, obviously, Roger Waters, he's, I mean, he can go out there and, I mean, he's got his life sorted out. Whatever he says, if he pisses off like half of the world, he doesn't, he, I mean, it's not going to change his life or his career, you know. And I personally see it as, you know, everything when it's like happening for the first time, you know, any artist that we mentioned here for the last 50, 60 years, you know, whenever something is being touched, any subject, the first time somebody throws a television out of the hotel room, the first time someone, you know, uh, commits, creates chaos out in society, and then it's, you know, first uh, a page of, of the local newspaper back in the day, that would be obviously uh, the way to promote themselves. And you know that marketing agencies behind the artists would be setting up those things in order to get that free promo because there was no social media or internet. But but nowadays it's kind of like if I'm if I go out there and you know uh, as an artist and I you know want to you know embody the rock and roll spirit of sex drugs and rock and roll I'm not gonna last very long in this business of ours nowadays because that's not cool anymore and that's not something. Why is that? Why is that the spirit of rock and roll? Because that's what it was portrayed to us as being that, and we know, and we know for a fact that most of the things that were portrayed to us, they were not even real. People still believe yeah. that Axel Rose was a drug addict and a crazy person <laughs> using drugs. Well, mate, go watch the videos of Use Your Illusion tour and that guy running on stage and screaming like a motherfucker. If you think that that guy was doing cocaine and drinking booze before going on stage, I'm sorry to tell you, you're wrong. <laughs> Patty Smith never did uh, anything. I don't think she drank either. Everyone thought she did because her hair was always crazy and all that. But uh, they think you do. Yeah, I think people just think. I mean, I, I probably I act the same if I drink and I don't drink. So I'm not the same person. I don't know. You got. I think you, it's. You guys don't drink at all, do you? Um, I used to. Yeah. I drink a lot. Like a few, I stopped a few years ago, but I actually feel like I um, can express myself more without drinking. It's like a weird thing. Now it becomes like mu like much more real. I can have a, a, real, a realer connection to people. But like uh, I'm talking drinking in the sense of like say uh, New Year's Eve. Let's toast with a glass of bubbly. Is it something that you guys don't do? You don't even touch alcohol? Is that kind of level? Um, I actually stopped it completely, but I might start it again on this tour just a little bit. <laughs> oh my God. Why did I ask? <laughs> but no more whiskey. I can't drink. I'm allergic now. I think I drank too much whiskey and now I'm allergic. I can only drink like clear, like clear vodka or tequila, I think. Oh my God. Try. Going straight to spirits, Delilah. Straight to the heavy stuff. Uh. <laughs> I only drink heavy stuff, though. No beer. That's boring. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, basically, when, Edgy, there's something that is at the back of my mind here, because you said that music was 24-7 for you and things were happening. Uh, would you say that that flame that 
Because at some yeah. point, what I'm trying to get here, for all of us, music entered our life somehow. You mentioned it at home. Was it? Is there a specific moment that you remember that you listened to something, you rem you listened to some a particular song or a particular music, and that basically drove your whole system into overdrive, and then music became what you just uh, described to us? No, it was from the very beginning. It, was the, it wasn't one specific moment that kicked me into overdrive. I was like on overdrive as far as as far back as my memory takes me and i don't know why like i it's the weirdest strangest thing why like why the hell did a kid like i don't know i must have i i'm i'm terrible with ages i just know that it was like two years before fucking kindergarten you know what i'm saying like like that's how i measured life like oh fuck first grade oh shit still gotta fucking go to school like that's how i know life you know what i'm saying um so I just remember just being obsessed with melodies, music, tunes, the fucking ice cream man. I chased him around the block. I know that music too. You know what I mean? Like everything was just like, it, it was all about music, you know, but it was, there was nobody else. It's just me. When I met Delilah, that's the other person that I've met in my life that was obsessed with music as well. My friends listen to music constantly, but it wasn't an obsession where it ruled their entire lives, except for maybe one or two people. But Yeah, my friends, yeah, they had, like, my friends, two of my friends are dancers, but no, um, no one was obsessed with music. No. It's even... like a 24-7 thing. We like, can't even fun. drive without picking the right song. I'll, I'll be outside after 20 yeah. minutes. I need the right fucking song. Health, but it's, but <laughs> where, where did you guys meet? Oh, man, Long Island, New York. Yeah, at some, like, um goth cafe or something yeah. it was a goth cafe would you consider it a goth cafe <laughs> i don't know maybe yeah it was like an alternative kind of um started off as like an anti like um how do you even describe it it was a social it was a social occasion basically it was not yeah all right yeah right. but it was like one of these places where like um where metal heads and fucking uh people that are like the countercultural people types would hang out you know what i mean It was like one of those spots. And we were both like getting in, at the same time, like before we met, we were both getting into like the older blues, like the lineage of blues and going back, like like picking up records, even like Bob Dylan. I just started getting to Bob Dylan. I'm like, oh my God, his lyrics. And we were like obsessed with lyrics. Like, mm -hmm. So Delilah, tell me a bit about how you said you, you were always singing at home. How did you start singing? How did it became something that you were actually doing on a regular basis as a teenager? Uh, I don't know. I think just, well, I know when I was very little, I would just be singing like whatever music I heard, like Blondie or I remember like Bob Dylan, I, my, Jammin' was like me and my dad's song. We're jamming. <laughs> so I were like, Your dad comes up a lot. Her dad comes up a lot in this interview. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> So your musical influence came from your dad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And uh, did you did you undergo any specific uh, training? Did you study singing? Did you attend uh, any sort of conservatory, anything like that? How's your uh, technical development as a singer? I did like a few years of classical music, and at one point I was like considering like just doing classical, like. Um, Like early, I forgot now even the genre of classical. It's this genre with the loop, it's like a loop player and a voice. It's like early, I can't even remember what it is now. Like a, 
Baroque or something. Baroque. <laughs> oh boy. Like a specific style, um, which is weird because it feels like a totally different like lifetime ago. And like, I can't imagine like doing that now. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's because it was so, I liked understanding the voice. Like when I studied voice, I was like, oh, okay, that's like, that's why like I breathe so much. And like, like breath is like the main thing when you sing. Like that's what I got from like classical music. Like understanding like how the notes are, like where they are in your head. Funny fact, uh, I graduated as a classical singer. I studied three. Really? Yeah, I studied. What? I studied three years in the uh, classical conservatory of music. So I studied uh, classical singing, and I used to sing like in a very operatic way. And yeah. so, oh. so I do know exactly what you're talking about in terms of understanding <laughs> your whole system, uh, how you know uh, to obviously look after it, and how to create projection, and how to understand yourself it helps to understand yourself as in, within your own body doesn't it because you, how it resonates how you bring this note up here how do you do things in that uh, i was a vocal coach for many years as well so singing is something that uh i haven't practiced uh, now for many years but i started myself as as a musician you know uh, we're gonna bring us some classical back absolutely absolutely i mean uh i've i've just did the tour with um uh, a dutch band called weaving temptation and sharon the singer she never really took lessons and she doesn't particularly like taking lessons and when i mentioned it to her that you know i had this knowledge uh we started basically doing warm-ups before the shows and she loved it we started you know we started just working out, uh, you know, it's just literally just getting, you know, stretching your body and getting loose and getting the breathing going, relaxing your muscles, the tongue, larynx, etc. etc. Like get going and then do some vocalizers. I mean, just get yourself in that because, mo I mean, a lot of the, not I guess nowadays not so much, but uh, people used to think that singing was just like mainly rock singers used to think that you know singing is just something that it just happens but it's like any other instrument you kind of have to work it out you have to look after it you have to practice it if you don't play edgy guitar for an entire week and you pick up the guitar again you will obviously be able to play but you feel the difference don't you yeah i feel the difference on the first show because it it doesn't matter how much you rehearse it doesn't make a freaking difference as soon as that show starts by the second song or third song, your, hand, your hand's cramping up like, this is not normal, what's going on? Live, you play differently than, than you would if you practice. It's much more intense, there's a lot going on. You're probably utilizing muscles that you don't usually, or, you're, or you are using those muscles, but you're, um, you're using them differently, if you will. Yeah. I, I, go ahead, uh, go ahead. When we, the last summer tour, we our first show is opening for Guns N' Roses, is like a big stage oh, yeah. and we got covid like right before oh, the God. show where oh, <laughs> and i never torture. felt like that in my life where like um i had to use every like inch of like energy to like breathe so, like and like <laughs> no. i never realized how physical the show is and when we had covid and going into do a show i was like oh so physical like. but, but it's an interest it's a it's interesting isn't it because on those occasions i mean you learn a lot about yourself and your your capabilities as well dealing with that particular concert gave you both tools that you didn't have before now you Bro, know 
Bro, come on. We learned those lessons way before that, bro. Like, if I told you shit that happened to us on the tour, man, you wouldn't even believe it. All right? <laughs> I, 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 we, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to be up to hearing those stories. That's for sure. <laughs> yo, yo it's, I'm telling you, man. I, I don't even know, like, that first tour we've done, how we were so dysfunctional so dysfunctional and we had good simultaneously we had the worst luck and good luck at the same time but yo it, it was just it tested us in a billion different ways sorry Edge, but when you say your first tour which tour are you talking about first tour we were done she was sick the whole time she had bronchitis she no, couldn't I got, recover i got pneumonia. pneumonia we we did a tour where um it was like we would like call places. It's like one of those we got in the band and went. Yeah, yeah. We, had, we were in New York. Is... We had a show in Washington State, so we had to drive across the country <laughs> for our first show. Uh, was this but, before but the first the, album was released? No, we we were stupid. This is before like, we will rain. Is it? Yeah. You got to understand the stupidity of the people in that van. There was four of us, and I don't know who's the dumbest in that van. Like we were. I don't know what happened. I, I'm not the same person. Like, it, I can't believe how dumb we were. We would drive straight through snowstorms like i don't know how we, we didn't die how we, how we didn't drive over a cliff we didn't see anything there was nothing in, front of us. In, the, in montana on the way to washington state um in the snowstorm we had to sleep in the van in the snowstorm yeah with, <laughs> all we saw was white. I got pneumonia, we're driving and we see white just just <laughs> white i can't see if there's a car in front of us i'm like yo like we just stopped and started sleeping, sleeping next to each other with our amps the like <laughs> Putting our noses down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really bad. In Vegas, a fucking 80 some year old man tried to rape me, bro. It was a crazy yeah, that was tour. Very random. We, we, we went, that's a random, that's, that's, that's a story for another random. time. <laughs> that was traumatic, by the way. Then we went to Texas. No, no, um, we did go to Texas. We ended up in Mexico. I got food poisoning, or two of us got food poisoning in Mexico, but it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like Matsuma's Revenge, but it's some shit I haven't felt before. The tour lasts like two and a half months. We finally make it back home, and I couldn't even sleep in the house. I'm like, I need to sleep in the van now. I developed some kind of complex. It was fucking weird, dude. This is weird. But I'll never forget the drummer. The, the, the bassist never made it back home. He stayed in Texas. We dropped him off. He stayed in Texas. So three of us made it back. He's still there. He's still there, bro. So three of us made it back. And I'll never forget this. The drummer, who we still talk to, he's, he's a good friend of ours. I, I'm surprised any of us remained friends after that. And Delilah and I wouldn't talk to each other. We'd go like days without even saying hello. It was crazy. We so it was miserable, bro. <laughs> so then we, we get but back home. But also fun too. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's fun because you like look back on it, but it was torture at the time. When we so. got back though, it was the funniest thing. The drummer turns to us. He's getting stuff out of the van. It was the most depressing scene. We're broke. Most depressing thing you could probably think of. He turns to me, and I'll never forget this. He goes, oh, man, that was hard. And I paused for a second, and me and I look at each other like, no, it wasn't. I do it all over again. That actually wasn't hard at all. That was actually one of the best times of my life. There was nothing hard about it. And I really got to thinking of it like we were literally like we didn't even have money for food. So we'd have to like pick receipts out of the garbage and like pull like <laughs> McDonald's and say they messed up our order. We, we did that shit. You know, wasn't hard at all. You know what I'm saying? It was actually kind of fun. And the thing is, I don't, I'm not glorifying poverty because it's all relative, but you know what I mean? Like 
We've seen hardship when we crossed over into into Mexico. We see how the the majority of the population lives. So when bands tell me that it's difficult to tour or they eat ramen, so fucking what? You're chasing a dream, eat the ramen and shut the fuck up. That's my whole attitude. There's, you want to trade places with somebody? I'll show you to trade places with. I'll show you a hardship. You know what I'm saying? You never been to war, bro. You never picked up a gun and fucking went into war. You never had, you know, your leg didn't get blown off by a landmine. We're good. Everyone in Hollywood, everyone in the music industry, we're all good, okay? What's hard for us is not sleeping, the schedules, and fucking thinking you're going to pass out, ending up in a hospital if you haven't slept in five days, deep dep- sleep deprived. That's difficult. I get it. That's, there's nothing fun about that. You know what I mean? Checking your pulse, like, oh shit, am I alive? Am I, did, my, did my heart just stop? That happens. But this shit needs to be put into perspective. You know what I mean? Any musician that tells me, oh, dude, I can't do the road. It's so hard. They're being a little bitch, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like, it may be tough, but it's not that hard. You know what I mean? Totally. I'm sorry, get off the top totally. Of that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. You got a pair of shoes on your feet, bro. You good. And the roof over your head. What? And a yeah, roof over your head that. and health. Health is mo- health is the most important thing. I think if you've got yeah, your yeah, health, yeah. man. I mean, if you look after yourself and you've got your health, you're capable of, of, of anything. You know, if, you know, it's definitely um, if you're unfortunate enough to have some sort of um, health condition that you inherited from family or something. That's that you, difficult. That's, that's that, difficult. That be, yeah. that's we didn't difficult. have that though. Now that that wasn't the case here. We didn't look out for each other. We didn't. We made it harder for each other. We but then again, that was like you said. It was, it was your first tour and you're like, you know, teenagers, I presume, or like early 20s or something. So, yeah. So, but it was know. funny. One of, one of the memories I had was in Vegas when we were, um, the drummer disappeared. He threw his wallet into the air with his ID. He had no money in it, so it didn't matter, but his ID was in there. And he disappeared, and we didn't know where he was until the next day. So we don't know if he died or something, if he's, like, out in the desert somewhere. And we're checking out of the hotel, and we're walking out, and the, the bass player was kicking a, a bottle of ketchup through the casino, through the lobby, and everything, and <laughs> cursing me out. Motherfucker, fuck you. Boom, kicking the bottle of ketchup. Dude, ketchup is, like... Fuck, the, the bottle's opening up. There's ketchup everywhere. He keeps kicking the ketchup bottle down the fucking lobby. Oh, my God, bro. Like, people are staring at us. And looking back at that, yo, it is hilarious. Like... <laughs> I'm not even going to ask what was his reasons for, like, kicking a fucking ketchup container through a fucking hotel our and hands, swearing hands We were carrying all our stuff out because we were checking out. We had no hands. So we had bags of groceries of old, like, you know, like breads and whatever the fuck. And um, a, a bottle of ketchup fell out and he had no hands to pick it up. So he just kept kicking it. And every time he kicked it, he cursed me out. Fuck you. Boom. You fucking egotistical piece of shit. Boom. He kicked the ketchup again. But like 20 minutes later, we're good again. It's like the weirdest thing, bro. Like, yeah. So, I mean, that, that yeah, that's, that sounds like someone that is not um, with the right, you know, mindset honestly none of us bro we all sleep in the same bed four of us we wake up in the morning making animal noises and jumping up and down (laughs) making monkey noises without saying words we we wouldn't talk to each other there's no hello it's just like like noises animal noise it's like ape noises 
Okay. And my D, that my D, what you said a lot. Like that's it. <laughs> very dysfunctional. We're not. I'm not that person. So it's strange looking back at that. And I never was that person before that. I don't know what happened, dude. Like we we were both in college. We're educated. We have degrees. You know what I'm saying? I got a fucking. I got a master's degree. I can speak. I'm not an idiot. All of a sudden, I join a band and I can't formulate sentences. <laughs> I was going to I was going to ask I was going to ask you both about it. I was going to ask um, Delilah if you if you if you went to university and Edgy just confirmed that. But what did you do? What was the course? Oh, oh my god, I did um, music therapy. Yes, and I got a job at um, my last. That was my last job. It was at a nursing home, and I was working with like dementia patients doing music with them. And then actually, it was. That was the job I quit, so we could do that tour. <laughs> I ended up quitting, and I told all my patients or whatever, um, and they were all like, "Yeah, do your follow your dreams, go do it." They were like rooting me on. <laughs> you promised you'd go back. I know I never went back. Don't, 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 don't. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I guess having that degree is—I mean, it's always good. It's always good to have that. You know, um, how would you say? Um, not, not like um, accolade, you know, having accolades are never a bad thing, I suppose. And you, Ed, you did uh, political science? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what was, the, what was the, the force behind you choosing this particular course? And I didn't know you have a master's. Can you please tell me about yeah. what, what, what's the master's of, on? No, it was just, I went to school for music at first, uh, audio engineering. And I hated it. It just sucked the life out of music. So I wanted to do anything else. So I switched over to like non-declared or whatever. I, I didn't know what my major was going to be. And I'll never forget one day somebody said, why don't you be a philosophy major? And I looked at them like they were fucking crazy. I'm like, what? I, I, dude, I didn't know what a major was. You got to understand something. Like, I didn't know anything about nothing. Like I, I, high school, I didn't like it. I'm in college now because I felt they made me go. So I chose audio engineering. I hated it. I didn't know what the majors were. I didn't know there was a list. I didn't know you could go see somebody like a counselor and talk about it. I, I didn't know none of this. Okay. So I'm sitting there and they said philosophy. I'm like, like you mean like fucking Socrates and shit? And they're like, it's like, yeah, bro, you can study that. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. He's like, no, you could. I'm like, I don't believe you. So I saw a counselor um, that they assigned to me or whatever. And uh, he told me that, um, I could be a philosophy major, but what about philosophy? I'm interested in it. And I told him, like, yo, counselor, I was like, I don't give a fuck about rocks. I don't care how the rock, I don't care about the meaning of life or the meaning of a rock. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to know about that. You know what I mean? I want to know how I could change this fucked up world. And then he goes, oh, there's something called philosophy. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm uh, sorry, political science. I was like, oh, okay. Is there like a theoretical part of that? He goes, yeah, political theory is one of the um, categories of political science. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll be a political theorist. That sounds very, that sounds awesome. You know what I'm saying? And I'll also never forget, I said, I want to go to Hofstra University or something like that. He put me down. He goes, first, you got to go to community college. Your grades aren't good and you're not that smart yet. You're not intelligent. That's what he told me. And I'm looking at this dude like, what the fuck? Like, did you just fucking tell me that? I took that as a challenge. I'm like, I got to get my grades up in one semester, bro, because I'm going to Hofstra. And Hofstra, it's almost like Ivy League or they're talking about switching over to Ivy League. It's not that, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not easy to get into. You know what I'm saying? My grades, I can't get into that. The guy was right, but he called me stupid. 
So within one semester, I had to bring my grade point average up to as high as I could. I don't remember what it was, but man, I paid attention like I never paid attention before, bro. I was a good student for the first time in my life, bro. I was like, I was studying and I was learning. I'm like, yo, my brain works. I was like, this, this I can learn some shit. So it worked, right? And then I got into Hofstra and Adelphi in every school I applied to. I chose Hofstra. I, they threatened to kick me out of Hofstra one year of being there. They were going to expel me because of my politics. I started organizing people on campus. I was politically active. This is a very right-wing university. So then I applied to SUNY New Pulse because they had the, like, the most awesome professors there. And there, there were radical professors there. Got accepted to that, and I went there. And that was life-changing to me. That is when my real studies began at, at uh, SUNY New Pulse. Were you playing music already during this period when you're doing your degree and organizing those, um, organizing those things at university? Were you already like playing your guitar? Was it something that was a regular on your life? At that moment, I was still obsessed with music. I listened to it every day, but I, you, I'd be in the library also. I never hung out. And you ask my friends, my college days, they'd never see me out ever. The most they, the most I'll do with them is take a ride from Seven Eleven for twenty minutes, and I had to go back and read my public my um my my journals and like I would be at the library logging into like JSTOR and all that like the electronic databases of like academic journals and writings. Yo, man. So you really like, so you were a hundred percent focused on your degree at this stage of your life. You were not I was, like I was writing more dissertations than the professors asked for. Like at the end of the year, you do like a dissertation. I write three or four. Like I. I, it, it was it, it took over my entire life, and when they did ask for that, like your what's your thesis about? I always chose something that they thought was impossible to write about. I'll never forget when I did my master's thesis. Um, they asked me what I was going to write about, and I said, "I am going to prove that <laughs> dialectical materialism, which is the Marxism, a, a brand of Mar or, or a strain of Marxism, rather." or a methodology in Marxism, if I want to be more accurate, um, that historical materialism is, in fact, within the metaphysical realm. Marx um, took Schopenhauer and flipped it on its head, right? When he took the world, he flipped it upside down, he made it about the material, right? And he developed a dialectic that made, um, I guess, it turned... Um, I guess uh, one study of the world, it's like a science, right? It's, it's a history and judging history and the future. It's a, it's a scientific process and he developed a dialectic and then they called it historical materialism and they took it away from the metaphysical realm. I said, no, dialectical materialism is in the metaphysical realm. And the professor looked at me like I had two heads. I goes nuts. He says, you can't write about that. That makes no sense. You better back it up. I'm like, oh, I'll back it up. I put my whole grade on the line for this, right? I put the whole semester on the line in that class. I, I submitted my paper. Sure enough, he's like, you know, you made the craziest arguments in here, but it's What'd accepted. What'd you get on it? Yo, 4.0, bro. Every class 4.0 <laughs> except for one feminist teacher I had that I knew it. First day of class, I'm like, oh, God, look at feminists. This is the worst class ever. Like this teacher, yo, I don't get along with the uh, liberal feminists ever. It just, it ain't going to work out, bro. So I'm sitting there like, should I sit this out? Because she's going to ruin my whole GPA. Or should too, I stick with it? Aggressive. Should I challenge myself? You're too aggressive as a dude. Like, no, it's, it's this whole, because <laughs> liberal feminists, they, they merge, they marry capitalism with feminism. You cannot do the two. You can't do it. But 
they have a tendency of being very judgmental. They don't like radical ideas. They don't like to go to the root of the problem. They're very surface. So I'm like, oh, man, this fucking teacher's going to, I'm done here, bro. She gave me a shitty grade. That messed up my GPA, right? Um, but anyway. <laughs> and he chose rock and roll. Oh, then I just left. Oh, I heard Sun House, and it was a rap. I was like, yo, fuck this degree shit. Sun House is where it's at. Then I was obsessed with guitar. I left the library and I entered a new library, the library of Cloud William, my guitar teacher, my mentor, and we just played blues day and night, fingers bleeding all over the place, and that's all we did, we played the blues. So before, at what age did you pick up the guitar? At what age did you start playing? First time I played it was before kindergarten, bro. You know what I'm saying? I, I saw, I didn't know it was called the guitar. I saw this wooden box with things on it, the strings, but I didn't know what that was. I didn't know where strings were. I saw something. And it made noises, and I flipped out. And I grabbed it, and I remember being on my stoop playing with it for what felt like hours, but I don't know. I was too young to remember exactly how long it was. It was somebody's guitar. When they left, they were visiting. When they left, they took the guitar with them. I asked my mother every day for it. I couldn't get it because I didn't know the name of that thing. And she didn't know what I was asking for. I said, the box, the wood box that makes the noise. She didn't know what I was talking about. So for years, I'm asking for a guitar until I saw another guitar. I'm like, oh, my God, that's the thing that makes the noise. Then I pick up the guitar. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, I would have so many more questions to dive into on that part. But I guess this would turn into an extremely long uh, podcast, I guess. We and can I've been answering, we, my questions have been too, answers we, too we, long. Maybe we should get to Lila no, on some of I, these answers. I, 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 think, I think we're definitely going to have like a part two and part three on this one. But, um, <laughs> but, but like, um, just to, just to uh, finalize, the, finalize the subject of university and political science, what were you thinking in terms of a career after that? What were you going to do with your <laughs> professor, yeah? I wanted to instigate rebellions on college campuses. I my my goal, literally, I'm not exaggerating one bit. I'm just being completely transparent, and honest with you. My goal was to radicalize as many students as possible and get them to reclaim the universities or burn it down. I'd be for that too, but reclaim the space. I wanted the students to decide what the curriculum was going to be. I want because it's happened before. It happened in Berkeley and other parts. In um in, I guess, radicalized pockets of uh, universities back in the 60s, 70s. But I, I, want, I wanted to um, reclaim the university as a radical space of complete free thinking, and, and, and I wanted to overthrow the U.S. government. That's what I, and I wanted to overthrow global capitalism. That was my goal. I have no other goal but that. You know what I'm saying? And so as a professor, I figured, hey, I could do something. But then I realized that I probably wouldn't make as much difference as I could. I could probably do um, make more of a difference through music because of the rigidity of the, um, of academia, and even more so now. You can't say or do anything. You will be out. They are firing tenured professors. Trust me. It's there's no safe spaces. Yeah, I mean, I've just I've just uh, finished my my second degree last no, uh, last year, and uh, I mean, I could go on oh, and on. Oh, what? Yeah. What's that? In what? Uh, music, business, and entrepreneurship. Ooh, nice. word. So, We're going to be picking your brain on yeah. tour. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, always music, obviously. You know, first, uh, you know, the, the first dream was to be a rock and roll star, you know, and I recorded albums and I was signed and I toured with some of my my biggest heroes. And then at some point I was like, man, the band thing is 
it's too much drama, you know. And and when you like start in your band, you have like, on my case, it was myself and another four guys. And obviously, it's like 20% each. Everyone is putting in, you know, if the studio costs 50 quid, it's a tenner each. If you're putting fuel in the car. And then obviously, whenever it, when everybody's chipping in, everybody has the same right to say what they want and what they feel is, you know, the right direction. But we all know that, um, especially when you're in your 20s or early 20s or late teens, if you're a guitarist obsessed playing like eight hours a day in your room or if you're a drummer trying to get faster on your double pedal or whatever you, you i mean you're not necessarily inclined to the business aspect of what it is actually having a band because you think that a band is just this cool thing that you're going to be famous and you're going to be you know with girls and this and that but you forget that it's a business like any other and you're going to have to set up as a business and you're going to have to work on it. And uh, it's not going to be like getting your first distribution deal and your first album released worldwide and a couple of tours that will make, you know, you this new superstar. It could happen, but it's very unlikely, especially when you're doing niche music, which was my case, power metal. So, you know, but, I knew it. I knew you played that. So when you said opera, I'm like, I knew it. <laughs> so, so it's like, I mean, and then he got to a point. He got to a point that for me was just like, I mean, this is just not worthwhile because if I had carried on, I mean, I would probably have a sustainable business going. I would have a sustainable band. It would never be the next uh, stadium act, but album after album, music. Record, like recording music and, and, and your publishing rights and your performance rights and having par solidifying partners along the way, you build something for yourself. It's not necessarily your... It could, it could have not been the main source of income. I don't believe it would ever be the main source of income, but it would be something. But we unfortunately live in a world that not a lot of people believe on the long run, not a lot of people, and people do change. It's inevitable, you know, today you want something and especially in your 20s, I mean, now you want something in five years time, oh, now I have a girlfriend and I want to buy a house and I don't want to go on the road and stay on the road for 60 days. Fair enough, people change. But, exactly, but 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 that, that was a little bit too much for me and I was like, I mean, I have to do something that... Um, I depend on other people, obviously. I need clients, basically. But the job depends on me, you know? I mean, if I do my part well, I do my part well. And then I've got a job. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and I can add to people's lives. And I can add to, you know, the artist. And I can make a difference, you know? Instead of, like, having to re rely on other people to get somewhere do you know what i mean i still rely on other people to get somewhere obviously i need to work with artists but it's but my job depends on me i don't need to i don't have another two people coming along and if somebody fucks up i fucked up or i lose my deal or i you know it's it's not yeah. like that so it's about taking you know um the realms i guess uh of your own destiny but yeah i mean lots to talk about that i mean like yeah i've i've started very young as well on on on, on you know this whole thing so yeah um we're gonna have definitely time to talk about it i just felt like talking more about it now but it's not it's not it's not the moment it's about you guys so let's get into um something that i'm really interested to talk about 
which is basically the writing process of uh, We Will Rain and how did, because um, I was telling you guys off, off, off the record earlier on that um, I've, 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 I've listened to the album before, I've listened to the songs before, but last night, uh, prior to our conversation today, I really took the time to listen from beginning to end with headphones, read the words. I mean, it's. I mean, it's. It, it made a huge difference and a huge impact on me. I must admit, uh, which is great. I'm, I generally am a bit like you know, if I listen to something that really glues to my brain straight away, I te- it tends to fade away. Whereas your music, it's been growing and growing and growing within me. So for me personally, it's a, it's an amazing sign, but. My question is, the first question is, how did you guys started writing? When did you guys start writing? And what led to eventually hook up with the people that you hook up and get the album that We Will Rain, which is an incredible album, amazing production, Brandon O'Brien. Tell me the story about that, please. Man, how did we start that story? Well, we, like how it all became about. Yeah. So writing the songs, first thing. When did you guys start writing the songs? How how long before the album oh, uh, being well, recorded? It was, I guess it was, it was kind of long before we recorded it because we well we ended up recording We Will Range twice, twice, once in Nashville, and we hated it. Um, like it was, it didn't sound like us at all. There were like they put they brought in too many like studio musicians and like kind of like bulldozed us. Mm. let's put it lightly and then uh so we ended up getting lucky um and the label gave us more money to record with brendan o'brien so that's how we got it recorded with him and he produced it but it was in like it was during christmas break it was like i remember christmas day we were recording and like uh because he only had like a tiny window so we actually recorded it really fast like in the studio but we wrote the songs. I mean, they kind of had a, a journey. I think songs like Devil's Dust, um, Brendan O'Brien had the idea of like the acoustic guitars, like things like that. He like tweaked a few things. Okay, Delilah, but let's uh, backtrack, uh, rewind a little bit. Getting yeah. to the studio, having Epic Records back in you and going to recording Nashville and then moving and producing with Brandon O'Brien. I mean, to, to, to get to that. Financially backing us. Financially backing us. Financially backing you, right. That's the only backing we got. Okay. We ended up getting signed. <laughs> but how did you get... By, how, how you were not signed at that point yet. Yeah, we, no, we got signed by Epic Records. No, um, you, you left out the most important part. The interesting part. We moved to LA with the dream. That was before that, yeah. Right? And we had a manager... And we shot our goals high. We said we will get a major record. We wanted a deal. We, wanted, we were tired of being in the van, sleeping in the van, people's floors. We the only thing we knew how to do is um, the only thing we knew is that if we're going to get people to listen to our music, we need a record deal. It's not like that today, but we were like, okay, we're going to get a major record deal in less than three months. That was our goal. That was our, and I always recommend that shoot high, and that's what we did. Yeah. So we actually had the deal. L.A. Reid heard um, the manager at the time showed L.A. Reid um, our song "Deportees." It was like a Woody Guthrie cover, acoustic, and he 
he liked it. Like he's a pop guy, but he like was like, okay, they're they're starting a rock department. So he like he's like, yeah, let's bring let's let's sign him. So he got signed by L.A. Reid at Epic. Did they, um, did he see you guys perform live before that? No, he only heard the song, and I think he only heard D4Ts. I think that's it. And it's I like a Woody folk, Guthrie a Woody Guthrie song. It's like a very folky song, but I think he like heard something in the vocals and he like liked it. So that's the um, stuff of the dream. That's how dreams are made of, right? Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then we um we're like okay we all also we didn't. After well, I'm skipping ahead. You skip a lot. That's why the <laughs> back. The, I don't want to make it too long. The backstory. The backstory is the most important part. Her and I were in a van break that was breaking down at this point. We moved to LA with the dream of getting a deal in three months, and we we're sleeping in the van and on people's couches. That's yeah, the most important that. part of this story. Then Ellery signed us. Because if Ellery just signed you out of nowhere, where were you? You were home? Like, you're hanging out with yeah, your mom? I, and thought dad? We, like, I thought we established We that. did that, right? Then they put us up in Big Bear right after we got the deal. Big Bear is like uh, California. It's like uh, like lakes. and It's very like woodsy. Yeah. So we rented a cabin in Big Bear, and that's where we like finished writing. We thought all our troubles yeah. were over. Yeah, we're like, this is it. We got an advance. Let's get a Our nice... troubles were just starting, yeah. bro. I got that check, and I was like, remember, like, staring at it. like That bro. check went like that, bro. <laughs> like this, bro. We started taking our friends out to eat, going to sushi. We never had sushi dinners. Like... <laughs> bro. That's why I stopped drinking. It's too expensive. <laughs> so then you guys are at living in this cabin uh, at in Big Bear and uh, writing the album and then you guys okay we've got the album let's go and record it who makes the decision to go to Nashville and do this whole thing was it the label was um, it the manager at the time who like had who like like knew, knew a place we, uh, producer and a place we could go but it's a, it just didn't feel right as soon as we got there it felt everything felt off um, but we kept going with it and then Edgy was fighting with the manager like no this isn't right and uh, I didn't. I, I when we were recording vocals, I didn't even know how to sing anymore. It was like everything was like getting to my head. He was like, like, no, you didn't sing that right. And like everything was like he was trying to get me to sing a certain way. And then I just stopped knowing how to sing. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, do I know anything? Like I, I started doubting everything. And like I was like everything was like super negative. Um, Who was producing? Yeah. What happened? Who, 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 who was producing? Oh, it was Brendan. It was, it was um, Brendan Benson from the Rack and Tours, and it's it's it wasn't necessarily his fault. It was his no. fault because he's the producer. But we went out there, and the, on day one, I said something's wrong. Something's wrong. Hold up, something's wrong here. You know what I'm saying? And the reason why was um, it just didn't work. The 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 drummer and bassist that they brought in didn't showcase the so our songs the way we wanted them to come across. We said, this ain't it. Delilah and I put our hearts and souls into every song. I can't, I cannot for the life of me hire a studio musician just to do, do it for a paycheck. I can't do that. It won't translate well. I need people who love our music and want to do it. And it comes through. It sounds mechanical in my opinion. The tempos were wrong and other things were wrong, whatever. Day one, I'm saying how horrible it sounds right in front of the musicians. No disrespect to them. They were cool people. I said, but this ain't working. They look, they just, they did, they were getting paid a lot of money. So they're, they're like, oh shit, we're about to get fired. 
they make us do it. The producer pulls us outside, has a chat with us. I said, dude, I don't like this at all. Then it became a fight between us, the producer, the manager, and secretly the managers telling the producer one thing, they were telling each other another thing. Then they had us turn on each other. And I remember like freaking out in there right in front of them, talking into the headphones. I couldn't see her. I'm like, Delilah. She's like, what? I was like, you like this shit or not? And then she was like, uh, I don't know. Okay, something's fucking wrong. If it's wrong, you fucking stop. I'm pulling the plug. Boom, the manager calls us up. Oh my yeah. God, another problem. They made us do it. They said, just stick it out. You guys have never made a record before. I yeah, started- that was the thing we kept, like, I, my gut, like both our guts were like screaming at us. Like, no, this is not good. It's not right. Like, yeah. but you don't know what to do in like, that situation. Like at that point, I didn't know. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I was so lost. Yeah. I was like, okay, the manager's telling us to keep going. So we just keep going with it. But everything we thought we manifested in our head came true. It, it came to reality. We said it in that studio. I've never met the drummer of Rage Against Machine in my life, okay? But that's one of my favorite bands, Audio Slave 2. I said it in the studio. This record needs someone like Brad Wilk. It needs a player like that. It needs him or someone like that. Not this. It needs that. And I was very clear. And it needs a producer like Brendan O'Brien, right? Sure enough, the record, the label liked the record eventually. We rejected it. Alana said, nope, over our dead bodies with this record come out. I'd rather have no record than this record. That's not going to be our introduction to the world, that record. Do you still have a copy oh. of that? Do you still have archives of yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let you hear it. But we said, you'll be shocked when you hear it, but we, we said, um, we made a demand onto the label, the A&R, who happened to be the manager. That's a whole other story. So I said, um, I was like, listen, we're not going to continue this record unless you get Brendan O'Brien. Are you kidding me? He's expensive. Well, we already spent the budget. I don't care. No Brendan O'Brien, no record. And I got to find a drummer like Brad Will. It's my exact words. We're at Tom Morello's house, Thanksgiving dinner. We told him we need a drummer. He goes, oh, let me see what Brad's up to. We text Brad. And the very next day, my phone rings. I'm like, hello? He goes, oh, hi, this is Brad Wilk. Uh, is this edgy? I'm like, holy shit. I said we were going to get a record deal in three months. We got it in a month and a half. I said I wasn't going to sleep on someone's fucking floor anymore. We weren't going to sleep on someone's floor anymore. We said that we're gonna, we need a drummer like Brad Wilk. Brad Wilk just called me. We said we needed Brent O'Brien. That, that came next, by the way. Brent O'Brien. No, Brent O'Brien came before Brad, actually. Uh, but, yeah. but that too, Brent O'Brien is doing our fucking record. This is crazy, bro. And I think like, Brad came in because, well, he trusts Tom. Um, yeah. Rella, baby. And then he also trusted Brendan O'Brien. I think when Tom said, oh, Brendan O'Brien's doing the record, he came in right away. And then we went, like, practiced with him real quick. Then we went right into the studio and we did the record. Yeah. <laughs> And you guys knew Tom Morello prior already to, to the, the album and the deal with Epic. He's right. the reason why we went to LA. Right. We right. met the manager around the same time, and then we went to LA. Okay, so you guys then recorded the album with Brad, and uh, in my opinion, it's like, it's honestly, it, every song on the, on the record is just like, I mean, you I, I can see those songs like, on the radio, on David Letterman, I can see those songs. I mean, they're, they're yeah. great music is great music, all right? That's and, another 
sorry, radio. And 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 great performances of you both, <laughs> Brad. I mean, it's like honestly, it's a great piece of work. I mean, I'm sure you guys are proud of it, and you should because it's honestly, it's it's really really good. But then, like, you guys go and perform at David Letterman with Brad, and uh, you did a tour of Robert Plant, and you have then Tom Morello, so half of the Rage Against the Machine, on stage with you in Hollywood. I mean, everything is going really well, and it's the stuff of, no, like, of like, really like dreams bad. are made of. So, it what? Never went well. Never what? went well. The moment, the, the, the pinnacle, the, the, the height for us, was uh, in the studio with Brennan O'Brien. The seeds were already planted. There was already friction there. We were already on the downfall behind the scenes. It may have But seen, not with Brandon. With Brandon O'Brien, the relationship was good. Everybody, everybody, bro, everyone. It's, it's everyone you can imagine. It may have seemed like we're having the time of our lives. We were miserable. It was the worst time of our entire careers. Playing Letterman was definitely a highlight. That felt good. If you showed up to Letterman an hour after we have performed, do you know what you'd see in the streets? Me, Brad, and Delilah yelling at each other and fighting on the curb outside. We're yelling at each other over something so stupid. The problem was the people that surrounded the band. You get what I'm saying? Brad has more experience than us, so he snipped it out right away. That guy's a snake. That one's doing this. That one's going to fuck you over like this, this, and that. The way we went about it was the way maybe Rage would go about it. We can't go about it that way. We're not Rage's machine. We don't have a platinum record yet. You know what I'm saying? Bridges were burned every fucking day. Every day, another bridge burned, another bridge burned, burn that bridge. We were scheduled to be on Carson Daly, and then right after that, another nighttime show. Okay? The day, like, what was it? Kimmel. Or Kimmel. So it's no Kimmel. The day before Carson Daly, they canceled. Carson, we canceled Carson Dale. We did that. Okay? We did that. We didn't. We canceled Kimmel. We canceled Kimmel and Carson Dale. We did that. Now, we didn't know we did that, but we did that. What happened was the manager was a snake, two faced snake, like one of the worst snakes you can imagine. Something happened secretly with her and whoever else. I don't fucking know. She turns down the sh the, the, the Kimmel and Carson Daly, or she turns down Carson Daly. The publicist is confused and goes, this is impossible to get. You know how hard it is to get Kimmel and Carson Daly? I got you both right after Letterman. You guys are on a roll. I quit. If you ain't going to take Kimmel and Carson Daly for whatever stupid-ass reason your idiotic dysfunctional man could come up with, I quit because there's no point even hiring me if you're not going to take the greatest opportunity of your life. The manager lied to us and said that our Sony deal that we signed, the publishing deal, won't allow us to do Carson Daly. I should have been more proactive. I should have called up our lawyer. I didn't. I waited too long. It was too late. How I looked at it. A few months later, I knew it wasn't right. I called up fucking Car I got up Carson Daly. I called up um, our lawyer. I'm like, could the Sony deal have prevented us from playing Carson Daly? He goes, absolutely not not connected okay so our manager lied to us well that's not that it couldn't have been because your publishing deal like i'll call you back i called the manager i'm like i want a fucking straight answer right now he's like yeah and there was the assistant i spoke to i said tell me the truth we didn't play carson daly because brad pulled the plug on it he didn't want to play it 
And she goes, yeah, but we didn't want to tell you that's why. Like, why would you take us off Carson Daly and Jimmy Kimmel and get our fucking publicist to quit on us right when we had momentum and not fucking tell us? Why would you lie to us say it was a, it was a publishing thing? Oh, you know, we didn't want you guys to fight. Yo, that was the end. That was the nail in the coffin that fucked everything up. Then we got blacklisted in that process. We got blacklisted by uh, William Morris. Now the blacklist starts. So guess what? Just Every a pause. Was- just a pause. Just a pause, Edgy. Just a pause. Yeah. Um, why Brad wouldn't want to do, after doing Letterman, two television shows, yeah. high-profile television shows that any musician in the world would want to be on, and he's with you. He's just he just did Letterman. Why would he yeah. not do it? Is that is that the real story as well? The truth. The truth of the matter is, I don't know. All I know is that the manager said it was Brad. Did you never speak to so Brad about it? It was so dysfunctional that the communications between us and Brad started breaking down because of all the horrible people we had around us. So if it were today, I take responsibility for a lot of it. If it were today, it would have went down completely differently because I would have been more mature in how to express myself to someone like Brad. I lacked empathy. I didn't have empathy. I'm going to be, I'm calling myself out. I didn't have empathy whatsoever for another band member, in this case, it's being Brad, um, who's coming into this band from a completely different angle. Someone who's been in a, he, he, he owns Grammys, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like he won Grammys. You get what I'm saying? He has experience. He's been in the tour bus, the private jets, whatever you want to call it. He's had all this experience. You know what I'm saying? So, um, all I can see, I had tunnel vision about our career. We need to go to the next level. So the communications broke down. And if Brad had a concern that was legitimate, I would not either, A, not take it seriously or write it off. You get what I'm saying? I allowed people around us to make decisions for us. And he started communicating with managers and not with us. So everything got funneled to a manager who lied to us. So the communications just fucking collapsed. Afterwards, when we talk to Brad, everything's fine. Like, you know what I'm saying? We don't have those issues, I guess, because I guess I'm more mature now and I don't, I'm not the same person I was. So I, I'm not as petty or I'm not as like egotistical. Not that I had ego, but like if, 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 um, if an issue came up with Brad, I start, we start arguing with each other over what? And when you look back at it, I'm like, why would I argue with someone over something so stupid? Stupid. Delilah wasn't arguing with anybody. What am I, an idiot? Like, it has to be ego. But the, but our world was crumbling around us. So in a way, you can't fault us too much because we're fucking novices at this. I don't know anything about a record deal, bro. Our, we sat in the offices of Epic Records and our project manager told us that we pulled the song Wonder Man, which Ellie Reese said was going to be the big song. We pulled it from radio a week into it going to radio. I would never do something that fucking stupid and idiotic. It's the dumbest fucking thing anyone's ever done in the history of fucking music. I would never do that. The, my face went pale. I'm like, what are you talking about? We pulled that song for me. It was, yeah, your manager called us and said, you don't want that song on the radio. Dude. Remember? Yeah. That's what was happening. It was so dysfunctional that it had to crumble. It had to fall apart. There's no way a band can stay together and communicate in those circumstances. But how does a manager gets involved with you, uh, gets a deal with Epic Records? I mean, and, and, and you know, again, 
theoretically everything is going well for the manager. He got like you guys a deal. Nah, he, he, manager had nothing to do with it. The manager, the case, it wasn't the manager at the time. Um, he got us the deal and then became the A&R at the label. So then we got another manager. He became our A&R and then we got a new manager when we were when we released the record. And that was a woman. And that's when everything really felt, that's when everything fell apart. That's when all the lying happened. And I went to, we went to have a meeting with our project manager. And he's like, oh, I heard you were changing the name of band to Delilah. Wait, you know, you look at each other like, what? What's happening? Like, things were happening that we didn't know were going on. Like, and then she was talking to Brad, and like, I think she told Brad at one point that she was trying to kick Edgy out of the face. Yeah. I don't know. Things are so nuts. We're like, what is going on? Yeah. So this is a, a, not the one that got us the deal. This is like right when because, we already because then like with. Like pulling a song out of getting on radio rotation, it's like how I mean, how did the how would the label even consider that? Considering the amount of money that the label had advanced and they wanted that money back, so and owning, I presume, obviously, I presume, no, they paid for it, so they owned the masters of it, so they would want that yeah. song to be on the radio in order to, you know, yeah, but you, you have to understand the meeting we had when we found out Warner Man was pulled from radio. We found out on our own that our other song, Life, Liberty, Pursuit of Indian Blood, it hit the top 20 in some radio, in the radio charts or something, whatever, alternative or rock radio in the U.S. Rock. Nobody told us. Our manager didn't give a fuck about us. She didn't even know that happened. The label didn't even communicate with us. We found out because we Googled it. I was like, oh, shit. We called a meeting. We went in there because our manager wasn't involved. We called a meeting the project manager. And we went there to see what we can do to get it to number one. I said, yo, that song got to, they, it cracked the top 20. That's cool. Like, can we get to, how do we get to number one? Oh, we pulled that from radio already. We went with Warned Man. Why would you pull that from radio when it gets to number 20? Oh, because that doesn't have crossover potential. Like, oh, they're playing the crossover game. Fuck. I'm like, all right, so want to make a crossover to pop? They're like, yeah. Okay, yeah, but you guys pulled that from radio. I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. We came here to figure out how to get our song from 20 to number one. You tell me that gets pulled from radio, and now you tell me you pulled one and man two, bro? He was like, yeah, you guys pulled it. We didn't pull it. You did. I was like, I did? <laughs> the manager was having talks with the label, so I don't know what... Some of it's still a mystery. <laughs> a mystery? I don't know... What happened? I know that L.A. Reid wanted Wanted Man to be the single, and then the radio department, or someone else in the department, another department, it ended up being Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Indian Blood. Uh, but there was, like, a fight from the beginning, like, that they, they didn't know which song, like, at the, to go with. At this point, the record has been released. The record is out. Okay, and then yeah. and then in terms of touring, what happened? Uh, did you guys did you guys did more tours than the one with Robert Plant? And who was booking those tours? Was it William Morris at the time? No, William Morris didn't do anything. No, I didn't do anything. No, ITV was over so now Europe. Yeah, Europe and uh, but he doesn't do US. He only does Europe and the rest of the world. He was doing it. Rod, Rod, Rod McSteen. So Rod was involved. Rod was with you back then already. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. right, right. So he, Rod has been, uh, since the very beginning, ITB has been your agent since the very beginning. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Um, man, and then, okay, so 
this is 2014, 2015. You guys uh, then released an acoustic album, but your second uh, full-length record was sold on fire in 2019. What? Uh, 2019 or 18? 19? 18 maybe? I was checking the versions of it, so I, I've noticed that uh, the first press, I think, was 18, but then there were some represses by... Uh, an American uh, distributor, uh, Elephant uh, Army. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Um, so what? What? So what? The, with all the, I mean, I can only imagine the the amount of pressure and stress because, like you said, everything that you're saying, Edge, was becoming reality and in a very dreamy way from an outsider, not as you described, being inside of the eye of the hurricane, which is what was happening at the time. Um, but how 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 to navigate all that and uh, how to kind of like get out of like a system that um, it's a it's a system that could really propel your career and the things were actually happening but somehow people were just not allowing you guys to take on those opportunities and I understand. Uh, having you having an influence with what you just described, maybe not having enough uh, uh, um, maturity or maybe not having enough uh, uh, experience to deal with certain circumstances. But regardless of all that, this I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word project, uh, not from from the from your side, but from the side of all the people that were involved, from the musicians, the label, everyone else. For them, was a project. How can a project with so much potential can go south so very quickly and not have a way to okay, let's take a year off or let's take six months off. Let's let's work this through. I mean, we've done this record. It's great. I mean, let's you know how 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 why was like a complete part ways and then you guys went and did basically independently Soul and Fire from my understanding. Yeah. And the new album is independent too. Yeah. <laughs> I think after that, um, man, we had so, like, I think, uh, like, part of the, the problem with having Brad in the band at that point is, like, when things started going south, people would lat latch on to him, and then we were left, like, nothing. Like, I don't know. And a lot of the people that we talked to at that time, like just stopped, like ghosted us, but they would still talk to him. Like they ghosted us because of Brad. Like they stopped talking to us because they hated Brad. Then they blacklisted us and comment, follow Brad will comment on all his photos, uh, ask him to hang out and do photos together. They, they become best. Like they tried becoming best friends with the guy. It was yeah, so fucked saw up. That, oh wow. Like this is, like things started getting weird, I guess, like because he could give them more opportunity or whatever. Like people would go to him, like and I'm like, oh, like forget them. That's why we ended up leaving Los Angeles, at, yeah. Like at a little while after, um, and just focusing on Europe because we wanted like a clean slate. We even we just started feeling like off with ourselves too, like our souls or whatever. I don't know. It just felt like dirty. Yeah. <laughs> after a while, like being around that, and like everything was just so negative. So we got evicted. Yeah, we got a victory. <laughs> we fought it and won. They paid us to leave. They paid us. LA paid us to leave. There you go. We won. All right? We got the last laugh. 
So then, you, where did you move to from from LA? Did you go to New York or back to Portugal? Um, we go straight to Portugal. Like, no, we went straight we to, to Portugal. We got yeah. a European tour. Yeah, we did. Yeah. But what Delilah's trying to say though, because there's a lesson in this, and we knew this beforehand, that if you have clout, if you have importance, if you're a member of Foo Fighters or any band, what is it, whatever band it is, you can be, you can act however you want. You can be the world's biggest. Uh, greatest guy or the biggest piece of shit you can fuck people over you can be nice to people you can do anything you want it doesn't matter your actions have no consequences people are going to want to glue themselves to you they're going to love you no matter what if you don't have that success you will be blacklisted you'll be fucking reprimanded you put down like the saying goes no one loves you when you're down and out you will get fucked up that's why when the dust settled, everybody loved Brad but hated us because we're not at that level of Rage Against the Machine. There's no other way to describe it. If Warner Man would have went to radio and popped off and we're as big as fucking Adele, all these people would be fucking calling me up every single day, not ignoring my phone calls. They'd love us. They wouldn't care what we did to them. It's all water under the bridge. That's the lesson we've learned. You know what I'm saying? Um, mind you, Brad did nothing wrong. Okay, when he was in the band, he taught us how to be our natural selves and be punk rock because my personality was checked at the door. Her personality checked at the door. We were, we were little bitches in a certain way. You know what I'm saying? I've seen him when we were doing a radio interview in uh, Austin, Texas, right? It was a big, it was a glass, like, um, it was a bar with a big, like, um, glass kind of front so you can see inside. And we're looking at the radio interviewer person that we're going to do the interview with. I saw Brad curse out the bouncer because they said he can't bring his water in. He told him to go fuck himself, this and that. And the the, the radio, this is live radio. And they're going, oh, Les Nash was coming in to do an interview. Oh, they're not coming to do an interview. Oh, looks like they're fighting with the bouncer. Something's happening. Oh, they're walking away. Oh, they're cursing out the bouncer again. I've learned from Brad to stand up for yourself. To me, that's one of the greatest things I've ever fucking seen in this band. I was like, oh my God, I could do that? No, I can't do that. He could do that. I can't do that. I, you know, I get blacklisted. He could do whatever the fuck he wants. He did nothing wrong. I stood up for him. The last stuff, we had his back. Like, yo, fuck that shit. That's awesome. I can't believe we just did that. We all of us felt empowered. What did we do? We played in the streets. We were hanging out. We didn't give a fuck about that radio interview. We got empowered by that. You know what I'm saying? So Brad wouldn't do anything wrong. But according to the manager, he did. All of a sudden, they're making us fight with Brad, trying to get him to do something or this and that, when Brad didn't do anything fucking wrong. So why is it on us to try to... Then, oh, you shouldn't play with Brad. You should do this. They're trying to split us apart. What did the guy fucking do that was so fucking wrong? What does he do? He plays drums too loud? This is rock, bro. He's supposed to play drums loud. What the fuck did he do? He cursed out the fucking guy who didn't allow him in the club with water? Good. What's the problem? You know what I'm saying? We had to deal with that shit. So these people tell us to not play with Brad. We told them to fuck themselves. We're playing with Brad. When the band broke up, they loved Brad, but they hated us. What the fuck did we do? Nothing. But that, that, that's what I... I that's when we realized, 
You can do whatever you want if you're successful. If you have mediocre success or you're kind of successful, if you pack out a 2,000 capacity club, not good enough, you have to be fucking, you have to be like on the level of like Foo Fighters. You got to be successful if you're going to do whatever you want to do. You know what I'm saying? And that's what happened. Um, did you guys do more than the Robert Plant tour with Brad uh, behind the drum kit? Or... He did the U.S. tour, and then he didn't do the U.K. tour. Right, right, okay, right. Yeah. Okay. And um, so getting to Soul on Fire, then, how did you guys uh, manage to, um, well, reorganize uh, the business, basically? Because um, from my understanding, um, Epic still owns, obviously, they will always own the masters of Rural Rain. But were you getting at least your royalty checks for from the publishing side of it from that record? Do you still get that? Fighting in the last part. Dude, um, so uh, we will rain. Obviously, the masters they, they they belong to to Epic. But do you guys get uh, your royalty checks for the songwriting of that record, the publishing of it? Is it is it like a, a an income of stream that is well established and you guys receive it? You do get a little something. A little bit. Yeah, I think they do own part of it but we get like uh, we're still recouping i think yeah we borrow mad money from them we borrow like especially doing the album, yeah, album over a million i'll tell you that much <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> i'll be paying that back forever <laughs> um and then so but then to put together like uh soul on fire and then record it and then get um what was the name of the producer again uh edgy you mentioned it to me yesterday is it Brandon O'Brien or oh, no? Soul on fire. fire that mixed the uh, album. She won't mix the album. We no, no, uh, we produced it, but uh, uh, in Nashville he he mixed it. Who? Soul on Fire. Um, oh, Vince Powell, Vince Powell yeah. mixed it. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In order for you guys to get yourselves uh, in a position to record an album uh, by yourselves finance the recording of the album and get uh, a producer like a Grammy award winning producer right to mix the album that costs a lot of money how did you guys manage to organize yourselves in order to produce Soul on Fire basically not having a label backing you up not having a label advancing money to you we learned fast we made all the mistakes in Nashville I made mental notes of all the things that I thought should happen. She made mental notes of all the things that she thought should have happened. We're all on the same page. We never had one disagreement over the music over there in Nashville. We're on the same page, how it should sound. So everything we fought the producer on in Nashville, we were like, oh, tempos, keys, everything. Everything you can fucking think of, okay? We go to LA with Brian O'Brien. He naturally did everything we wanted to do in Nashville. I fought back with him on a few things, just or not for. I, I asked him questions. I pretended to be the the producer from Nashville, and I was like, "Oh, should this tempo be a little faster? Oh no, it's perfect tempo. Yes, that's what I was saying in Nashville. Should this be in the key of B, not E? No, no, key E is perfect. He chose the key of E when we showed him the song in the key of B from Nashville. The key E was our key." We chose the key. He ended up naturally choosing our key. So we knew. We learned very quick with Brandon O'Brien. When it came time for Soul and Fire, we're like, yo, we could do this ourselves because we know what to do. We learned it very quickly, and we did. 
but it needed yeah, someone like Vance Powell. Yeah, we needed like to be mixed well. Some of the like audio. Also, we had like uh, different studios. We were like we're doing it in. We had Joey Castillo on drums, but that was in Los Angeles, and we recorded some of it in <laughs> Portugal. So. Right, and did Soul on Fire, did you guys try to make any kind of like connections with, I don't know, uh, the old publicist, for instance, to try and get back on that kind of, you know, Letterman route and try to get Jimmy Kimmel again? Did you guys manage to get, I mean, maintain a level of some context from from We Will Rain in order to try and reignite something as this new... Uh, a new uh, company being led by the two of you now instead of having all these people around you? Not really. I mean, we, like a lot of the people... It's just, so expensive. Yeah, like the publicists we probably couldn't even afford <laughs> that we had during that time. Um, which is like the top. Um, so this one, we mainly like... We were on like Taratata, which is like the big show in France, like a late night show. So we did like more European stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, because we were like, oh, let's just like, like stay in Europe. And it seems like in Europe, like France was like digging us, like the album and all that. And then we, we did get distribution in, from Sony for Soul on Fire in France, which was cool. And then Rod was like booking us a lot too, like Rod from MTV, the European agent. He was booking us cool shows. So like we were just focusing on Europe and we're still kind of doing that, but we're after this tour and this album, we feel like the new album is more like commercial. We're gonna like try to go back to Los Angeles for a few days. <laughs> uh, you mean Delilah, the new album coming out? Yeah. Del TLI three. Yeah. TLI three, yeah, running for a dream. You think you so you're saying that the album is gonna be a bit more commercial, you say? I think so. That well, we're releasing the um, this song in a few weeks, which March, right, March seventeenth, and that's I think our most like commercial song we've had. To date. I don't know if you heard it yet. Did you show it? I haven't. I haven't heard it yet. No. I'm. I mean, I can't wait to to hear the album. Really, like it's just like there's a lot of anticipation right now. <laughs> I must admit. I really, yeah. really want to hear it, especially after like, you know, uh, Edgy told me that you guys had to remaster it and had, you know, different drummers playing on the record. And I mean, again, so much like in terms of getting the final product um, finalized, right? It's always a bit of a bit of a struggle. Yeah. I mean, being independent is like, man, it's hard. Like, it's hard, but it's also... I guess creatively fulfilling, <laughs> but it's also like hard financially. It's a lot of ups and downs, and you gotta like think differently, especially if you're not naturally good at money. Like I was terrible with money, so I'm the, I'm the <laughs> money person in the band. Are you are you good with finances, then, Edgy? Very good. I pay all the Amex bills. I tell you everything. I tell you what I got in each credit card. I tell you what I got in each bank account. Okay, nice. I tell you what's sitting over there, symphonic distribution, one RPM or fucking. <laughs> I, I know I, I know our royalty statements came in this week. She don't know. He's good with you the, they're, they're nerdy stuff. That's the nerdy stuff. <laughs> we'll, we'll be out. Like, we'll be out and she'll be like, oh, I, w I really want to get um, – uh, this lamp for the studio. I'm like, ah, you can't afford that right now. Like, why not? I'm like, trust me, you can't afford that lamp. If I showed you the numbers, you might have a heart attack. So I wanted to buy. I wanted to buy a grand piano. In my mind, I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Like, 
do that. <laughs> are you guys? Um, um, I wanna. I, I think. I, I think because I, I have a few other questions that I want to ask you on this podcast. So I think I'm gonna leave TLI three for a second conversation. Maybe. Maybe we can actually okay. talk about it when the album is actually out. Because let's do it on tour. Okay, yeah. Let's do it on tour. Exactly. Yeah. All let's, right. Let's do it on tour. <laughs> Um, what I wanted to ask you now about was uh, what was uh, from all of the tours that you guys did, what was like the most memorable ones? Because you guys have so many stories and you toured with so many big acts. And I, and I know some of the, the stories of last summer as well. You guys had problems and then Delilah opened for Kiss by herself. And like, I mean, um, what, guys, what, what, what was like from all of those experiences, what would you say was the most inspiring? Did you guys meet somebody that really inspired you that, you know? Inspired. Well, last, I mean, last summer, I would say that, that man, Milan airport, where we got stuck. No, um, God. Avoid Milan Airport. Avoid every airport in Italy. So we had, uh, we had, a, we were going to go to Prague. That's the, we were opening up for Kiss. And um, our flight keeps being like delayed and delayed and delayed. We're there all night from like the night until the morning. And then it's finally says so canceled. We're like, what the hell? We have to be in Prague today. And um, we were already on like two days no sleep because the travel was crazy. Um, so then there was only one seat available on that morning flight to Prague from Milan. So then I hopped on it. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. they're like, all right, call a kiss and see if you could just play by yourself. Like, see if they'd be okay with that. And yeah. I was already on my way. Already on the way. And uh, I remember I was delirious. Like, yeah. And before she hung up the phone, she's like, and check Instagram. If some girl posts a picture of me, then I know I didn't hallucinate it. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Flight is boarding in like 30 minutes, so we're we're they're still trying to find a way to to go to drive or get a car to drive them from Milan to Prague, and it's like not happening. Wait a minute. First of okay. all, I we're we're with a French band and a whole European crew. Okay, everyone's from Portugal and France. I told all of them they're troopers, but I was like, yo, bro, if you motherfuckers are from New York, we'd be there by now. All right, just straight up. Okay, but you have to like go through like mountains or something. That's the only thing. The yeah, we would have went to go mountains. I would We'd be halfway there already, watching you get on a plane. But anyway, so I'm 30 minutes from the flight to where I'm like, let me go. I gotta go. So I was like, I had to run the whole way to the and uh, to the gate before they closed it. So I almost didn't make the flight. As I'm running, a girl stops me in the middle of the hallway. Well, what was it? She's like, Delilah, the last international. I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. She's like, can I take a picture? Like, she was like. <laughs> So I was like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, I swear I thought I hallucinated her. So I'm like, this doesn't even seem real. <laughs> but then I did it. That's why I told Angie, I'm like, okay, I'm on the way to the plane. I'm like, I don't know if I just hallucinated. Like, someone asked me for a picture. So, but then it was real. Like, I saw her tag us. So like, and okay. she's too humble. She won't tell you the best part of the story. When she's there, she's wearing this gold fucking jumpsuits, glittering. And Paul Stanley calls her a rock star. So you, what did he say? I didn't get to that part. So you jumped ahead. No, you were good. You left it out. <laughs> Wait, we didn't even get to the Kiss show. I didn't get there yet. Oh, there's more to this story? No, I'm running to the plane right now. Oh. Anyway, I got on the plane. I got to Prague. Um, they brought me. Oh, I wanted to get a harmonica. So I made them stop to get me a harmonica. It's already the morning and I have to be at the venue. Didn't sleep again. So I'm like, it's holy glare. And she still doesn't know if she's getting paid. 
Yeah, but I was like, okay, they're like, we have an acoustic guitar there. I'm like, okay, let me let's stop at a music store and get a harmonica. So I went and bought one. I only had like my gold jumpsuit in one hand and then like my uh, little backpack. I was like, like I was like holding my jumpsuit <laughs> that I was gonna wear on stage. So uh, anyway, I, I think it was before. Oh, before the show, I was talking to Kiss Kiss's manager and um, we were talking about like acoustic and he said that he loves acoustic music we were talking about johnny cash and all that stuff and then he's like oh why don't you get a picture with the band so I, they were doing their whole like meet and greet where the band stands and people like take a picture in front of the band so i went and um full stanley like i look up at him and he looks at me and he's like you're a star darling I said, exactly like <laughs> wow okay i can do this <laughs> that was before i played so i got like all fucked up I'm like thank you so much and it's weird because my mom had a crush on Paul Stanley when she was in uh, when she was growing up. <laughs> so I told her about that. I was like, that's so weird. Oh, but that's a really cool story. That's a very good one. Wow. I mean, being when I went on, yeah, when I went on stage, um, I just had the acoustic and I yelled to the crowd, like, "Hey, we're the last international." I'm so used to saying that. Yeah. It was just me. And then I was like, but my band is stuck in Milan. So I'm going to play you some rock and roll, just this guitar. Is that okay? And then they cheered. And then they were like, okay. Because people were looking at me like, who's this girl? Like, What's happening there? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like a week after that, the last Kiss show we did, because we played a, a few of them uh, over the summer, it was in Amsterdam. And Doc... Kiss's manager, we take the elevator down because he's having the show recorded for us. He's the coolest dude. They record the show for free. They're getting the whole production team to record us on stage. The camera's getting taken out. So he's going down in the elevator with us to make sure this is happening. And there's this pause, right? We're going down. And he goes, wow, what Delilah did the other day, man, that was really impressive. I loved it, man. That was that set was amazing. I was like, I was like, yeah, 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 the fuck. That was, I saw the videos and she said it went over well. Yeah. Pause. Silence. He goes, hey, you must have needed the money that bad, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him like, yeah, actually we did. Like, he, was like, he was like, all right, I'm, uh, that's why I made sure you guys got paid. <laughs> That girl get on a plane by herself. <laughs> Man, that's excellent. That's a very, very good story. And you guys did not manage to get to to Prague then. There was no flights that day whatsoever. There were, but in what? Not really. It was weird flights, and there were scattered. There was one seat left on her flight. Yeah, it wouldn't have got. I think you'd have to go to another country, and then and not another country like Verona into there or something like that. Like, but there were like one seat on another flight, and then one on another flight. There was a car, and I said, "I'm getting this fucking car, and all you fucks are getting in this fucking thing, and we're going." No, and was it? Wasn't he in Prague? Who? Didn't you call? Like, you, that's was the gonna, end of the oh, night. We're gonna I said a, it. A I'm band. ordering this car. We're all getting in the car, and we're all going. Or as many of you fit, you're getting in there. <laughs> I need the drummer, bass player, keys, sound guy, in that order. I need drummer first, then bass, then keys. I was like, 
whoever fits in, they're like, oh, no, impossible. What about him if he can't get in? Like, I don't know what car they have. I'm renting whatever car they got. The biggest one will get the fuck in there. Oh, I don't know, impossible. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, man, Europeans, bro. This is New York, bro. We'd be in that car right now on the way. And then some guy offered us a ride for like a thousand euros, whatever. I was going to take it. He, he looked shady, but I didn't care at that point. But then um, he was shady. We turned him down because I couldn't convince the rest of the group to take the van because uh, <laughs> they were afraid of it. And uh, when we turned it down, he threatened to go to France and murder their entire families. What? <laughs> what? Fuck. That is manto. <laughs> Jesus yeah, Christ. Bro. My goodness. I mean... Honestly, you guys, I hope you guys, I don't know how good your memories are, but I mean, you guys should definitely be keeping record of all of those stories because you're going to have to write a, write a, like a book or autobiography one day about it because those stories are crazy. I mean, honestly. I don't know where the camera guy was. You should have been recording this. There you go. Exactly. Those Dude, things. I was. I ripped my shirt in the middle of the airport. Took my my aviator glasses or whatever my sunglasses. Threw them on the floor. I'm cursing every possible word in the dictionary. I'm bugging out. I'm yelling at the top of my lungs. That should have been documented. It should have been documented for sure. Maybe the CCTV That's cameras cool. of the airport, huh? But you're not gonna have access to that, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Guys. I'm going to leave a bunch of other questions for when we are on the road. Then we can talk about, you know, the new album, what led to the new album. Because obviously between Soul on Fire and the new album, we've got COVID, right? We've got that break. I want to know about what happened for you guys during that period. What were the plans that you have? If you had any plans, how that got, you know, um, basically, you know, demolished. I mean, I can I can speak for myself. I had like, 2020 was supposed to be like a dreamy year, and then I was on tour actually when literally the world, when Donald Trump announced that no flights would be flying back to the U.S. and I was with an American band and they had to fly back. I mean, it was just absolutely mental. Uh, but that's another whole ca a whole can of, of worms that we can talk about it. I'm gonna finalize this one with some roller coaster questions, which are very simple, don't need a very long answer, but I'm curious about it. Is that right? Yeah. Cool. So, uh, do you guys have or follow any morning routines? Do we have any morning morning routines? Yes. If you follow or if you have any morning routines, something that you guys do it oh. every morning. When's the last time you've seen the morning? I don't. Yeah, we usually don't wake up. I don't wake up till the afternoon. <laughs> We're like late. I go to bed real late, like maybe four or five a.m. usually. So, but anyway, when I wake up, I Make say hello to my cat. <laughs> no, I say hello to my cat. Actually, this is my real routine. The cat wakes me up. I follow him to the front door to let him out. And then I take a glass of water and I sit with my cat and I like drink a glass of water. And then I make coffee. Because he likes to go outside right yeah. before he wakes up. So. What about you, Edgy? I get up, I look at my phone, and it's either negative or positive from there. It depends on what's the first text or email I see. If it's a bad one, I'm like, motherfucker, cocksucker, shit, fuck. I, I, I make myself a coffee, I curse the day, and then I try to respond to the email. 
if it's a good one, I'm feeling positive. I still make a coffee, except the thoughts are positive. Man, yeah. we gotta talk about it, man. Control yeah. those emotions, dude. Like yeah. it's all in here. You choose. You choose what you want to engage with and what feelings you want to engage with. It's up to us. We are the only one responsible. If if you read something that you don't like it and it angers you, and then it angers you. You know, you are the only one responsible for feeling that anger, regardless of what it is, because, you know, you are in command. And uh, which leads me to my next question, basically. Well, which I do want to add something, though. I always, after my coffee, while, while I'm drinking my coffee, I always go to Instagram and Facebook to interact with fans because, A, it puts me in a good mood right away. And I just love it. So does she. So we love talking to people and responding to people because for us, that's the best human connection we're going to get other than our families. Um, the connection that we have with people who, who follow the band. That's what we really, I do that every morning. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. So are you guys uh, spiritual at all? Do you, do you follow? Do you have any beliefs? Anything? Um, I mean, right now, <laughs> it changes. <laughs> I, I try to become more in the moment. And like a whole life for testing, like I've been in spiritual thing, I've been like grappling with my whole life. Because when I was little, I asked my dad, me and my sister asked my dad, back, <laughs> what happens when you die? And he told us you rot in the ground and nothing happens. So like from a very young age, I thought about death and like what happens when you die. So I went through like all different like spiritualities and stuff like that. But right now... <laughs> Um, I'm, more, I'm trying to be more like in the moment and like think of life as like a journey and like try to be a better person, try to breathe more and not react like angrily over like things that happen because like it, it's a journey and life has like a lot of ups and downs and, and a lot of times when you, you grow most is like when you're pushed and and it's very like it's hurtful to grow like it hurts you in a way it's like uh, like in stress. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. That's it. <laughs> what about um, you, sir? I, I'd say that spirituality is something that you'll never, ever, if you never mention it, I will never mention it. It's something I never talk about. Um, I think that Hollywood kind of ruined it for me, and he talks of it because they made it so fucking corny, bro, that it's like anything having to do with yoga or meditation or spirituality. Or anything that that's related to Eastern religion, they have perverted it and watered it down and just ruined it to the point where I can't even have a straight-faced conversation with someone I unless like they know about the subject and I'm just listening. I could do that. I could listen, but I'm not going to talk about it because they ruined it for me. I can't talk about it without thinking about like Leonardo DiCaprio or something. Like it just it just got ruined for me, right? But I will say this. Making music is a spiritual act. If it's not, then something's wrong. You know what I'm saying? When you look at Mike Tyson enter the ring, look in his eyes, okay? It's the same exact look. It's the same thing behind his eyes that you see behind Bob Marley's eyes. Any great musician has this. Johnny Cash had it till he died. A lot of musicians lose that spark in their eye. They just lose their body. You know what I'm saying? That's the spirit leaving the body. You know what I'm saying? That's their spirit getting dull. There's something's going on there. 
you have to be spiritual, whether you vocally express it with words. If you're a musician, you're expressing it with your music and your your um, the way you come across on stage or during a performance. When you see Bob Marley, that's a spiritual act. It's behind the eyes. It's either you have it or you don't. Um, what's his name has it? Um, uh, what's his, um, Michael Jordan. Look at that dude's eyes, bro, when he's playing basketball. That's a spiritual. That guy's like Jesus on, on that court, bro. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. If you ain't got that thing in your eyes, forget about it. You're done. Like, it's, you, you know what I'm saying? It you you turns like some weird serial killer shit. And I see a lot of that in Hollywood, man. They lack something in the eyes. That's why acting sucks nowadays. And But everyone's spiritual. Everyone's fucking got the yoga mats, bro. But they don't have soul. They don't have spirit. So what's going on, bro? <laughs> Like, what's going on? We're definitely, we're definitely going to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, I was just, I mean, I mean, I was, I was just literally, I just finished reading for the second time uh, today. Where is it? Where are you? Oh, the four noble truths, um, Dalai Lama and um, reading, uh, finishing again for the second time meditations by Marcus Aurelius and, Marcus uh, Aurelius is the man. That's good stuff. That's and, a great book. And I'll tell you something. Um, for me, what has changed my life a lot for the better during the last five years, if you ask me, what habit have you um, acquired during the last five years, of during the last whatever, however many years of your life? Meditation. Because um, we basically, we go to school, our parents don't, tell us about it teachers don't tell us about it we just uh navigate this world of experiences this world of action and reaction of the five senses that we have and we barely know uh what we are experiencing we firmly believe that what our eyes are seeing what we are experiencing which is limited to the five senses that us human beings have which is incredible don't take me wrong but it's not all of it, but because of millions of years of evolution, of biological evolution and the Homo sapiens, most, more precisely for the last 10,000 years, because for the last 200,000 years were the Nethertals. And this is all evolution and a lot of our evolution, of our biological evolution is not recorded because we're talking about, like I said, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. You know, it's very difficult for us to comprehend what's happening inside of our minds. A lot of the things that are happening in our lives and a lot of the things that create anxiety and stress and happiness are only happening inside of our brains. All our world, my things, now I have to do this, I have to call this person, I have to pay this bill, I'm this, I'm Carl, I do this, I do that, I know this guy. All of this stuff, where is that actually happening? It's happening only here. So that tells me that a lot of the things that, you know, I use, uh, well, a person normally reacts to, and a lot of the feelings that we engage with, basically everything. It's our responsibility to learn how to deal with that because they will never cease to exist unless if you get enlightened if you become sad guru if you become an actor if you become one of those guys that get enlightened because i firmly believe ultimately none of the things that we're going to be doing here will last 
You can make a lot of money. You can be super famous. You can be a nobody. It's, it doesn't change. We're all the same. It doesn't change uh, um, where you were born, uh, the color of your skin, if, you, if you're a rock star or not. We, we are exactly the same. The only thing that differentiates us is our perception. Because I can see you two separate than me as physical entities. But who is permeating inside of all of us and the universe in general? People, certain religions, some religions will call uh, 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 Zeus. You're going to call uh, God. You're going to call, you can give so many different names and religion gets into that, you know, uh, uh, um, we have so many different uh, 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 religions on the planet and everyone is kind of like pointing to the same direction, which is, which is love, which is what we all are really. But anyway... I find that uh, uh, the fact that you deal with meditation, I can deal with my brain in the sense that, like a computer, so there's many folders. Okay, I need to access this folder here. Oh, but this, this is like, I hate those memories. And actually, that's a trigger. If anything remotely uh, similar to that happens on my life, I normally react this way. Okay, but now I can observe that, I can understand that, and I can see, okay, I see you there, but I don't need to react to that. It's going to go. I don't need to react to that. So anyway, it's just like, I mean, uh, we're going to have time to talk about it. I mean, I, I meditate yeah. like two, three what times a day. What would be interesting to talk about on tour, I guess, because none of time here, is... Um, what is often ignored, left out, or understated um, within the spiritual, I, I don't want to call it spiritual community, within people who um, seem to put a lot of emphasis on Eastern philosophy and pervert it, pervert it, right? And, and this is what I was talking about initially, is the overemphasis on the, um, the metaphysical realm, the spirit or whatever, right? Um, I think that the material and the economic base and the structures of our society has a lot more to do with, with um, determining people's outlooks, how we see each other, and how the rules and everything that governs the society. It's way more important than, um, I guess, the spirit or anything like that. The spirit has its place, don't get me wrong. But when you see like quotes by, um, let's say, like a Jimi Hendrix quotes, when the power when the when the love when when the power of love overcomes the love of power or something like that we will know peace something like that you know what i'm saying these are fantasy quotes it's a very popular one you see them on college dorms right it's a popular quote it's fantasy it's never going to happen this spiritual enlightenment cannot happen throughout the, through, within an entire class it's impossible it's without class struggle the physical part is the part that's missing you know what i'm saying that's what I try to inject with our music back into society. The ruling class will never have that epiphany. They'll never have a different perception of you. Their perception is the same. It's along class lines. An individual could, but not the class. So when they say, well, I'm going to pray for George Bush or Donald Trump or Obama or he has to see it our way. No, no, forget it. Forget it. There's none of that shit. Forget about the spirit. Forget about enlightenment. I'm concerned only about that physical um, of the world and the economics and the, and, the, and the shit that I can touch and see, the economics, that's what's their class interest is what's killing and starving out billions of people on earth. And no enlightenment can overcome that. It will never happen. But You'll never get a 
class. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, but Edgy, this is this is you. You pointed per perfectly on my opinion. Yeah. I think because we all are, and you're talking about the very uh, high end politicians. You know? No, no. Even the for the working class, you'll never get in like oh, yeah, the working class. Can't get it without a, a physical change in the structure. All oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And on, on, on the that's the part that no one talks about. <laughs> it's like you can't be as a class, spiritually enlightened, and be working for GE and be clocking in and doing things that are soulless, and it's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Do you know what I think? That I think there is. I understand what you're saying, but it's like when, for example. Um, I personally, I'm. I really try to pay attention and and be aware of what's happening inside of my head. And in general, just like Delilah said, trying to be present, trying to become a better version of myself, in order to be good for the people around me. Because if you're not selfish enough to just love yourself first and 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 try to become yourself, a better version of yourself, you can't do that to anybody else. So it starts with individuality. It starts with every single one of us and i'm not saying that i don't like uh that i don't want to you know uh, own a house in spain that i don't want to drive a very nice car that i don't relate to the physical aspect of things i absolutely do i live in this world i mean i'm gonna live here for god knows how long hopefully for a long while same as you guys but i think the big differentiator is to understand that those are toys and this is interesting things and we, there's no way for you, unless if you decide, okay, I'm going to go and live in India or on top of a mountain just by myself, that doesn't sound fun for me, but that doesn't sound fun for me because I'm not ready for that either. Because ultimately, I believe, you know, ultimately, I believe that the only reason, I think that's a very hard, that's a very, that, that's a, that's a very a strong statement that I was about to do. I'm going to leave that for another time, I guess, but like, I think ultimately, I mean, we are here to evolve as much as we can possibly evolve in as as this energy that permeates all of us. I myself as this physical entity, I'm not going to evolve. This is going to perish, you know. And does does that mean that we have an afterlife? Do I believe in reincarnation? Another. Not a completely subject, but I believe that we are all one. We are all part of the same universe. We are all part of the same cosmic stardust. We are all made of stardust, you know? So, if I get myself in a place where, as an individual, as, as a spiritual individual, but acting and operating in this existence of ours, maybe I'm going to head towards, you know, uh, somewhere... Nice, if that place actually exists. Not that I'm living my life, but I think it also gives you... I, I was going to say, not that I live my, my life uh, 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 thinking about that, but it does give you motivation enough to be to just be good. You know, because if you, if, you, if you don't believe in anything, if you don't believe in karma, if you don't believe in heaven on earth, whatever, in Christianism or whatever you, your beliefs are, that puts you in a position that, you know what? Fuck it. I'm here. I'm this individual. I'm going to try, which is probably what a lot of the people doing bad to the world really believe, you know? I don't know about you know? that. I might disagree with that part. 
If I understood correctly, I could be misunderstanding you. What was that? I, was saying, I think on tour we're gonna have some interesting. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. But I think I disagree with that. Some of the most ethical societies have been atheists. They don't believe in anything. You see what I'm saying? And, and, and that's when I studied philosophy, the question that always came up that came up was what is morality? Where does it come from? Morality does not exist. It's it, there's no existence of it whatsoever. It doesn't exist. It's a non-entity thing. We made it up. And then if you read Foucault, he goes much, much deeper. He delves much deeper into this. Morality is something that's created. Motherfuckers make it up. That's what it is. So in this society, the values have evolved to what we think it is today. People think it's by some divine intervention or it's been given to us from God. It's not. Humans just made that up. So I am more of a, I'm not anything, I'm no ism, but I'm, I tend to agree more with utilitarians in this aspect of morality, because that's pretty much what we're talking about. And morality is measured by pain, but it's not, I, we, can, we can come up with examples where it may not be so, but it's mainly measured by pain. I know it's wrong to walk up someone and punch them in the face. Why? Because it causes them pain. I don't want to do that. Not because God told me. If God said it's okay to punch someone in the face, I wouldn't do it. I don't care what God says. You get what I'm saying? There's no, there's nothing about heaven or spirituality or nothing. This is just simple pain and that's it. That's all it is. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to cause that per person pain. You know what I mean? It's about emotional pain. Emotional pain is the same thing. People feel depressed. You know what I mean? I think emotional pain is way worse than physical pain. I really it depends. It depends what's happening, bro. Like, yeah, true, true. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, if somebody cuts your arm off, it's gonna be very painful. That's for sure. <laughs> no, no, but my, I, I wasn't disagreeing with what you were saying about spirituality. Spirituality, you can ask. It, okay, Marl the King knows all about spirituality. You get what I'm saying? He was also a religious leader, whereas Malcolm X was also a religious leader. I don't think they're opposing philosophies at necessarily at the end. There's differences and nuances between the two, for example. But spirituality had its place always, especially in social movements in the U.S. and around the world, right? Um, what Malcolm X and more so towards the end of his life, Mal with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King caught up late to Mal Malcolm X. They started to agree at the end. That's why they were fascinated. Um, but they understood. I think that Martin Luther King started understanding what I'm saying. Because it was the, the the materialism, the base of it, right? That he started to get towards the end of his... He was going to form a, an alliance with Malcolm X. It didn't happen. The, CIA, the FBI and CIA had him assassinated, right? So, But it was going to happen. If you watch a documentary on uh, Martin Luther King that came out on his final days, he is very dark. Some of the darkest shit I've ever heard in my whole entire life was his writings and what he said before he thought America may be going to hell and there's nothing he can do about it. Talk about cynicism, but he still had hope. They they, they existed in parallel. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. what, what Martin King understood then was that you cannot liberate people, spirit. you can liberate them spiritually, in a way, mentally. Mental slavery is the hardest slavery to overcome, which is what um, um, we heard, um, what's his name, fucking uh, Bob Marley say. But if you are spiritually awake and you're great and you're this and that, but you don't own your house, you don't own the company where you work at, you're, you do, you're still a wage slave laborer and all this, this is where the other side, the materialism comes in. 
all, no enlightenment's going to happen until we are liberated from this inequality in society. This ruling class must be overthrown. There's not going to be no spiritual awakening throughout anyone, throughout the class. Individuals, yes, but not throughout the entire masses of people. By struggling together and organizing to own the means of production and take things over, whatever, and uh, coming together, it's that process that human beings become the true spiritual selves. They grow into something completely different. That's the only way. Until that materialism changes in society, you'll never see a mass awakening where people just wake up one day and go, I don't want war. Uh, I don't think this should happen. It's not going to happen. You know yeah, what I'm saying? No, absolutely. 100 <laughs> percent that, That's what I was saying. That's my point. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Man, <laughs> we're gonna have a lot. We're gonna have lots to talk on the road. I love it. <laughs> so many ideas and so many, you know, so much like intelligent content to talk about. That's I mean, I love it. I love it. I love it. You're a you're a very intelligent man, Edgy, yeah, for sure. You, got very... you are my brother. And so is Delilah. I'm just uh picking up some pieces here and there. <laughs> guys i mean honestly i just feel that we could carry on because literally i mean i had like so much more that i wanted to talk but i think uh, we're definitely gonna leave for a sec for a part two we can definitely do it on the road we're gonna have plenty of time together but that's you know i mean i've said that before oh we can do it on the road and then 30 days gone the tour is finished and you're like what happened we didn't sit yeah. down to have a chat about like because you know during on the tour it's just like bang 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 bang, and um, but yeah I mean I just uh, wanted to thank you both for you know taking the time today for you know sitting down with me and having the chat and uh, I'll let you know when this is uh, gonna be uh, released I'm gonna put some show notes as well I'm gonna put all your socials in it and uh, yeah any final commentaries that you would like to. To, to give to my roller coaster audience here? <laughs> A comment? Uh, man, just breathe and, I don't know, have fun and be cool. <laughs> and listen to TLI 3. Yeah. Oh, I had, oh yeah, I have to hype up the album. Gotta check out our new singles coming out. Woo! Getaway Driver and our new album. Running for a dream, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I will add this. Um, you see that up there? Yeah. We should be we should be getting all free coffees and everything for free for the sponsorship over there. Look at that. Look at this promotion we did. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> I just I only noticed that now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna have to go and visit when I'm in Portugal for sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, brother. All right. See you soon. <laughs> Peace, bro. Speak later. Bye. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation, this podcast, as much as I did doing it. So if that's the case, please do follow on Instagram at RollerCoasterCarl, myself at Carl Casagrande. On Twitter, same thing. Facebook, same thing. Uh, do subscribe. Do subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on Spotify. That's very, very much appreciated. Thank you. And have a great, great day. Cheers. Bye-bye.